0: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face to face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Trident Fly Fishing. Trident is an American fly shop with a huge selection and a low price guarantee. Not only will you find all the top brands here, but you'll also find a wealth of knowledge both in their shop and on their website. But here's where things get really exciting. Trident is offering anchored listeners a 15% off discount on your next purchase. If that isn't enough, they even have free shipping with no minimum order. Just go to www.tridentflyfishing.com and enter the code ANCHORED in lowercase letters at checkout. Some exclusions apply. Customers will need to log into their accounts to use the coupon. Dr. Aaron Adams is the Director of Science and Conservation for the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Author of three books and a contributor to many more, he is someone I've been eager to have on the show for quite some time. I met with Aaron in Florida to see if I could pick his brain about saltwater science. In this episode, we discussed interesting facts about bonefish, permit, and tarpon, and I quickly realized why Aaron's job is so consuming. Talk about some science, right? But we do need to cover who you are if that's cool.
1: That's good because uh, I am science.
0: You are science. I mean,
1: that's, that's a, as much of a lifestyle as fly fishing is.
0: But you're also a person with a story. So let's get the story. Okay. Um, Aaron Adams, where were you born and raised?
1: I was born and raised in outside of Baltimore, Maryland. So I grew up fishing Chesapeake Bay and the surrounding areas. And it was pretty formative because as I was growing up and fishing, the Chesapeake Bay was declining. So as I became interested in the science of fish, um, I also saw the the degradation of the bay. So it's kind of been at the core of why I do what I do.
0: How did you see that it was declining? I mean, were your parents environmentally concerned? Were they outdoors people?
1: Oh, yeah. We went camping all the time um, along tidal rivers. Uh, We went out uh, catching our own blue crabs fishing all the time and you could see the the striped bass fishery started to decline so you couldn't really catch striped bass for quite a while it was bluefish which are fun but that's not striped bass right the oyster population started to decline um so there are a lot of issues and you know if my parents grandparents etc haven't been in that area for a long time there was some of that uh, historical knowledge of what it used to be like Right. So you were
0: able to kind of see the baseline shift.
1: Right. So what typically happens is, you know, um, let's say I was 10 years old and I that is my baseline. I had the advantage of having people who had a better baseline, a more historical baseline mm-hmm. telling me about how it used to be so that I didn't come into it just assuming this is the way it's always been. I mean it's kind of an abstraction but you know for some reason I got it.
0: What was the next step for you when you get to high school? What kind of kid are you?
1: Um a troublemaker. Oh really? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> if yeah, one one reason not to for me to have kids is I didn't want to have me Because I was a troublemaker.
0: (laughs) You're that guy. I was that guy. Were you fishing and outside a lot, or were you on the totally opposite end?
1: No, I was fishing a lot. Um, Once I got my driver's license, I would play hooky and go fishing.
0: We have the same upbringing. (laughs) Okay, got it. All right, this is really interesting. When you were starting to think about your career paths after high school, what were you thinking
1: It was kind of automatic. It was all about uh, biology. It was, huh? Uh, Yeah, even in, well, I had the advantage too of in high school and in middle school, uh, junior high, I had some really good science teachers. So I think my interest would have still been there, but it was enhanced greatly by having really good science teachers.
0: Do they see the potential in you?
1: Yeah, I think so. Like we're
0: talking scholarship stuff here?
1: I'm not that smart.
0: Okay, <laughs> well, you probably, you are, but okay. So, but they definitely mentored you.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and when I've seen them, you know, since high school, over the years, they're always really interested to hear, where, you know, where I where I went uh, with it, because it was pretty obvious that that's what I was going to do.
0: So this has been your calling your entire life. Pretty much. That's really unique, you know.
1: Well, it's interesting too because. When I first went to college, it was a landlocked college.
0: Which college was it? It
1: was Guilford College in North Carolina. It's in Greensboro. Sure. And it wasn't working. It was a six-hour drive to the coast. Oh. It just wasn't working. Got it. Um, So it wasn't just the fish and the biology. It was marine saltwater fish. So I transferred out of there. I went to St. Mary's College in Maryland, which is right on Chesapeake Bay. And then it kind of went on from there. How did
0: you figure out it was a saltwater that you needed to be working with?
1: I don't know it's something it's not really an intellectual process it's just there
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: like when people ask you why do you fish uh, why do you surf I don't know
0: <laughs> do you think it's the species or the salt that you're drawn to it's,
1: it's, it's both but it's the it's salt
0: yeah, if you're surfing too, it kind of gives me some context there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. How long were you in school for, or in, in college for?
1: Well, college I actually in four years, yeah. which isn't that common anymore, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't afford, I honestly could not afford to go longer.
0: Well, because you're a doctor.
1: So a doctor- college was four years, master's degree was three years, and a PhD was another four years.
0: So you basically finished school like last year.
1: Yeah. That's that's crazy.
0: Did you do it? Did you do it every year consecutively?
1: No, and I didn't want to. I know some friends, colleagues of mine, have gone straight from college to graduate school, but then a lot of them during that process uh, figured out what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. and it wasn't always what they were doing. Right. So I went that's to college. That's an expensive lesson. It is. Yeah. Um, you also then are a specialist in something you might not not want to be doing, which. Makes it kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. No, I went after college. I uh, uh, stayed out of school for four years. A lot of different jobs, consulting, environmental consulting companies. Worked for the state of California um, for a fishing game. You I could did,
0: do all that with your degree. You don't need your
1: PhD for correct. that, right? Okay. Um, yeah, it was a low, kind of a low peon in that whole process. <laughs> <laughs> right. I uh, did a bunch of environmental education. I even did some commercial diving, which convinced me to go back to school. Okay. <laughs> Commercial diving is is tough, really tough.
0: Yeah, it's dangerous, huh?
1: Yeah, I didn't do the deep stuff. It was it was more boat cleaning, some salvage stuff, but it's hard, it's really tough work. Yeah. Um, and then I went back to school, and that was three years. And then I worked for another four years, and then I went back for my PhD.
0: Well, how old are you?
1: Uh, fifty two.
0: Are you really? Yeah. All right, you you don't look fifty two. Thanks. Um, walk me through the next step of your career. Where do you go from there?
1: Well, you know, even between. The 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 years between school was super educational too, because after college I knew I wanted to do marine science, but what what part of marine science?
0: Right, right. Even right. if you
1: study fish, there's 20 different things that you could focus on. Yeah. Um, and so a bunch of different jobs kind of gave me the idea some more direction. And when I got my master's degree, that was kind of the next step. And then after the master's degree, my wife and I moved down to the Virgin Islands. Oh. And I worked for their local fishing game for four years. And that was a really useful experience, which has really been applicable to what I do now because the cultural differences, uh, economic differences, uh, and even fisheries differences from there, say, versus in the continental U.S., are pretty major. Um, And so it gave me a pretty broad perspective of how to apply science and conservation in uh, multiple arenas.
0: Why did you go down the road of science and conservation rather than science and money or science and big corporation? Um, because I'm sure you had the opportunity to do either or when you were looking sure. at the branches of the career.
1: Because I went, I've only been to one high school reunion. Okay, that was the five year reunion, and I was for the most part were one or two others. I was. Already by then I was the only one who enjoyed my job, my career. Oh. You know, friends were in banking or uh, Wall Street or other aspects and a lot of them at that point already were kind of not super into it and just like fly fishing or fishing in general, science to me is a, a lifestyle as much as, as a job. So the money aspect isn't, it just isn't a focus. It's also, because of my upbringing and and background, I think it's important to uh, make a contribution to society, not just have a job and make money and do whatever, but actually you make a positive difference.
0: Well, we need you. I'm happy that you made that decision. (laughs) Okay, so after the Virgin Islands, what do you do? I
1: went back to graduate school. I met my wife uh, while doing my master's. She also had marine science. Oh. But then she realized we couldn't both be gainfully employed In marine science,
0: okay. And behind
1: every successful marine biologist, a spouse with a real job.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. So
1: she uh, she got into vet school, which is pretty impressive.
0: That is very impressive. Yeah,
1: which was a tough stuff in Boston. And so I went to University of Massachusetts in Boston. Uh, There's a a professor there, uh, John Ebersole, who worked on coral reef fish. So I did my PhD there, but I did all my research back in the Virgin Islands. So I'd go back down there three, four times a year for a month. Um, especially during Boston winters, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are terrible. <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> and so I did coral reef research for my PhD.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. Okay.
1: Um, but it's, it's all about fish and habitat, right? So whether it's a grouper or a snook or a tarpon, it's different species, but the same habitat fish relations. And after that, I got a job at Moat Marine Lab in Florida, they're on the west coast of Florida, and immediately jumped into recreational fish habitat. Focusing on snook.
0: You know how whenever you read these papers, when someone's going for their PhD, they usually find something really revolutionary. Were you able to find anything about the coral habitat that was really eye-opening, or something you could bring back to the, the to North, well, to the US?
1: Um, not revolutionary, but it, it built upon what people knew already. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the next uh, level, mm-hmm. and that's something that um, a lot of people don't understand about science: is eureka moments happen. Mm-hmm but they're based upon building on foundations from previous research. Um, and they're also, the eureka moments are little punctuations in long periods of nothing, <laughs> right? That stuff doesn't work or it takes a long time to figure it out. So nothing, no eureka information, but it definitely built upon what we we knew. And the focus was on identifying which habitats fish used at different stages in their lives.
0: Oh. Right. When you say fish, are, are you talking like, like reef fish?
1: What yeah, it was of... all reef fish at that point. Okay. So, for example, and the same thing happens with snook, tarpon, uh, you name it. When marine fish spawn, they don't build a nest like a salmon or a steelhead or largemouth bass. They Most of them do what's called broadcast spawning, get together in big groups, eject the eggs and sperm out into the open water, That's where fertilization occurs and there's no nest guarding or anything like that. And then when those eggs hatch, little larvae come out that look nothing like fish and they all float around the ocean currents for, depending on the species, days to months. And then when they, if they've survived, which 99% of them don't, they find themselves back in shallow habitats, they sink to the bottom and they metamorphose, they change shape into miniature what we recognize as fish.
0: Wait. Okay. So tarpon do that? Oh yeah. Do permit do that? Yes. Do bonefish do that?
1: Yes. <laughs> do
0: marlin do that? Yeah. What is there a species out there that I mean we're all very familiar with that does not do that?
1: Um, for marine fish, there are some fish that nest. Damsel fish, some gobies, do some nest guarding. But even with them, a lot of times when the eggs hatch, they all kind of become semi-planktonic, kind of drift around some.
0: This is so cool. I had no idea.
1: Right. Well, you think about it, the ocean is a really big pond. It's a really big place. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a stream with the kind of that moving water, it's, kind of, it's finite. It's more linear. So it's kind of a, scientists think of it as a bet hedging strategy. So you may, as an adult, you might live in a really good place, but you might also have, let's say, a hurricane come through. And if all your... Eggs are there, all your babies are there, and a hurricane comes through and wipes them out. You know, your lineage is done. Whereas if, and just because they drift in the currents doesn't mean that uh, they go somewhere else, right? The currents could just kind of be an eddy, and it just circle right back around. Um, Like for example, imagine an island in the Caribbean, like a rock in a stream. Mm -hmm. You get some stuff just gets swept right by, but you get that eddy on the backside. And you can see some of that same type of stuff.
0: Oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it.
1: Right. So you get some fish, those larvae that just kind of seem to circle back and others get swept elsewhere. But by doing that, they're spreading out the risk. Right. And if a female tarpon, say, has a million eggs and they're spread out all over the place, some of them are going to make it somewhere.
0: So if there's, if their spawning behavior is so broad... How, does the coral, how is the coral habitat relative to that?
1: Okay, so what happens if you have, say, a, a grouper, a Nassau grouper? They don't spawn right there on the reef. They migrate to a spawning location. So a grouper from a whole island or whole region will go to one spot to spawn. That spot's usually kind of upstream of where they live, so like the upstream portion of an island, mm-hmm. um, so that when those larvae hatch, and they can you know, circle back, down. Some of them will come back to that, that same area.
0: How far had they migrated away from it over the span of their life?
1: It depends. They'll have a h- small home range. And it's the same thing that's true, we're finding, with bonefish, do the same thing. Uh, 75% of bonefish that we tag that are recaptured are recaptured within one kilometer of where we tagged them. Really? And it could be two days, it could be five years later.
0: Okay. Bonefish in particular, then, it's not like they're going out hundreds of miles.
1: No, but then what happens is when they spawn, we've tracked them spawning 140 miles round trip to go spawn. So they'll leave the flat. The big schools will migrate to a, a pre-spawning location. And the folks uh, do a YouTube search for bonefish uh, spawning. They'll see a video of 10,000 bonefish swirling in a school. looks like a school of bait. <laughs> and then they go offshore at night to spawn. Um, they spawn. The water's you know, thousands of feet deep. But they, it looks like we think they go down to about 100, 200 feet And then rock it back up to the surface. What? Yeah.
0: We're going to talk about each species if that's okay. Sure. So just correct me if I'm wrong. So they don't always come back to where they were born?
1: You mean the, lar- the eggs and the larvae? Yeah, like right. as, as right.
0: adults. So how do they, I mean, you know how with steelhead and salmon, for example, right. they have like a, there's even like a lateral line, there's some sort of magnetic
1: pull or something right. to bring Right, magnetite, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, how do these fish it's not like they have a board meeting and they say, we're going to all meet in this spot. Do they put out a scent? How do they know where to meet?
1: We think it's, uh, some guys who did uh, work on Grouper coined the term social learning. So we think what happens is, let's say you're a, a newly mature fish, whether it's a grouper or or, or bonefish or snapper, and you know that you know something's going on, but you don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of fish swim by, uh, maybe a female, maybe they're leaking some hormones, and so you get in line with them. Huh. And then they imprint that location. Right. And then they can go back. We've seen the same thing with <coughs> snook. Did some work in, in Florida. I found that, wow, it's even higher. It's like 80-some percent of the snook went back to the exact same place to spawn each year
0: now is that where the coral research comes into
1: exactly because the processes are the same but a lot of coral reef fish are semi-territorial they have pretty small home ranges and with all that structure it's it's a lot easier to track them and so what we did is we could actually see where those when those larvae came in we could see what habitats those little guys you know grouper like an inch long where do you first find them and it wasn't on the reef it was in the seagrass beds away from the reef because uh, there's fewer mouths there to eat them, predation.
0: Whose science were you building off of at this point?
1: Oh, God, it's a long list.
0: Okay, got it.
1: <laughs> People have been working on this for, you know, decades. Right. Um, different species, different locations. And then figuring out how those fish shift as they grew. They get to a certain size, and then they move to the next habitat. And then basically what I could do is take that framework and apply it to stuff that we fish for.
0: When did the science really start in the salt water? Because you think about fly fishing in salt, it's really pretty new in the grand scheme of things. Has science in, has this sort of science been happening for 100 years? Has this been since the 50s? What do you think?
1: You no, know, fishery science has been well over 100 years, and a lot of it started um, as a way to manage fishing, you know, harvest. Mm-hmm. But it quickly grew into you know, fish ecology. I mean, that's been going on for, for quite a while. But it really boomed, I think, a lot, probably in the mid-1900s. 1900s, 1960s, I think was a really big time. It moved from a lot of the old work uh, publications and like American Naturalist, that type of thing, where a lot of descriptive like a naturalist you might describe.
0: As. Okay, so we're, we're still calling that science because of course it is. Yes. But it could be an explorer going out and taking samples of different species.
1: Right. Uh, okay. Charles Darwin is a great example.
0: Perfect. Okay, so it's been around for a long time, long time. But the technology to be able to get down and really do the science right. will and, be later.
1: And also quantifying it. Right. Just because you see a bunch of fish in a certain location doesn't mean that they're going to actually survive and contribute to the next generation. So, for example, if uh, people... See fish on a polluted river, they might think, Oh, it's not bothering the fish, the pollution's not bad. But a lot of times those fish will have internal lesions, which are precancerous, it might affect their ability to reproduce, which means that they're not going to contribute to the population. I mean, well you know all about this steelhead, right? Habitat quality is huge. So even if you see those fish spawning in a place that it's going to be too warm because of runoff, they're putting all the energy in but it's not going to make a difference. But you have to be able to quantify that. You can't just say, oh, they were here, they weren't here. And so that's what a lot of the work that's been going on in the past a number of decades has been focusing on. Okay. Put numbers on it.
0: Before I start diving into numbers and fish and pollution, all those questions I have, just so I know the final puzzle, it's not the final puzzle piece because you're still really young, but the next puzzle piece, you started working for the BTT, for the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. So can you explain that, that kind of leap in your career?
1: Sure. I was working at Moat Marine Lab on snook. Um, I started there in two thousand one.
0: Why snook? Is it because you have done all so much research with the coral and you already felt some sort of attachment there,
1: or because uh, I fish? <laughs>
0: okay, but snook was the thing. Was the thing that got you? Uh,
1: well, it's interesting because when I did all the coral reef research, I'd do the research, which was all scuba diving, and then I'd go fishing on the flats. And so it just was kind of a natural progression to start studying the stuff I fished for rather than study other fish and then go fishing. Yeah. Um, and snook is a super important species in Florida.
0: Hmm. Um,
1: it's probably the most fished for species in Florida.
0: So it's important from an economical stance,
1: economic standpoint, from a cultural, social standpoint with the, the fishery, but even more so from a habitat standpoint, because snook rely on wetlands and juvenile for as juveniles and other coastal habitats. And so it was a pretty easy next step to start working on snook to then inform habitat conservation in Florida and elsewhere. And so in a sense, the marine fish research on things like snook and tarpon and bonefish is way behind trout, steelhead, salmon. Imagine trying to do steelhead conservation without knowing where they spawned, without knowing where the juveniles were, without knowing where they migrated when they left the river. It wasn't that long ago that that's exactly where we were with bonefish, tarpon, permit to some extent snuck so for a long time there was really no wrong answer everything we found out was was pretty new
0: well how long has the trust been around for
1: uh they started in 1998
0: oh they're pretty new
1: yeah 20 years is our anniversary yeah. um, coming up at our symposium in november i started doing some research for them in 2003
0: oh okay you've been around then f- almost since the beginning a
1: lot of it and then i became the director halftime anyway in 06 and full-time executive director is 09 and then we brought in a new executive director Jim McDuffie, about a year and a half ago. So, now I'm 100% focused on the science and conservation.
0: So, which of the four species is most similar in their lifestyle and in their patterns? Or are they all totally different?
1: There's both similarities and differences.
0: Cuz it's got to be so much work. I mean, that's a lot of science.
1: How- yeah, you, you can't take no well, you can't take what you know about tarpon and then apply it to bonefish. They're similar processes, but different specifics.
0: Okay. Can I pick your brain about each of them for a bit?
1: Oh, bring it on. I mean, we
0: could do this all day. (laughs) I know we don't have all day. So if we talk about the spawning habits of each, are they all the same? Like you said, they all kind of get together. Are there any major differences between the four when it comes to how they spawn?
1: No, the overall behavior is the same. Big groups that broadcast spawning. Bonefish go offshore in the open ocean. Um, Which is bizarre, don't you think?
0: I think it is, yeah. You
1: got these fish that are, say, average 24 inches and live in the flats, and then they go offshore at night to spawn.
0: Marlin bait to me. That's what it sounds
1: like. Yeah. Um, People have found bonefish in marlin stomachs. Doesn't surprise me. I bet you the swordfish probably have a pretty good time.
0: I would imagine they do, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Snook, same uh, overall behavior, but they spawn in inlets or passes and along beaches, so shallower water. Tarpon also go offshore. A spot, for example, off of Boca Grande Pass in Florida, about 120 miles out, we think it's a spawning spot.
0: Do they get into like a big ball?
1: Kind of, yeah. Well, no one's ever actually seen it. No. I'm not getting in water 6,000 feet deep at night with 10,000 bones. No, you're not. No.
0: But do you think that's do you think that's where they go? They go way, way down? Yeah,
1: we've been able to track them uh, with acoustic tags, right. which they use for salmon and a lot of other stuff, um, that have depth on them as well. And so we've been able to follow them off short night. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, Andy Danilchuk, who's yeah, at UMass. he was on the show. Yeah, he's done a lot of that work. Uh, and then we've just kind of built on that with other places. And you can actually track how deep they go, and then you can see that uh, rush as they just you know suddenly come towards the surface. Do permit go down? No, so? they more hang out at uh, reef promontories, you know, like edges, deep edges, or wrecks, and those considerably shallower, but it's the same kind of upward, upward rushing behavior, but just much shallower. And tarpon? A colleague uh, who's doing some satellite tagging found tarpon it a couple dives, I think, to like 400 feet.
0: Okay, so talk to me about migrations. I mean, what are they doing? Are they following? Are all species following thermal? Are they following temperatures? What? What, what is the migration? And, and let me be more specific. When it comes to tarpon, hmm. when you t- when you hear people uh, say that the tarpon are Migrating or they're in their migration, like the big fish? What does that mean exactly?
1: It could mean a lot of different things. We know that some fish do seasonally migrate. Uh, for example, there's some folks, they're probably going to kill me for saying this, uh, <laughs> but there's some folks who fish for tarpon on the eastern shore of uh, Chesapeake Bay in Virginia every, every summer.
0: What are the fish falling down, though? Currents?
1: Um, no, because the Gulf Stream was too far offshore at that point. A lot of the current along the Atlantic coast is actually the Labrador current, which is north to south. So the thought is they're following uh, the increasing temperature. Some work suggests seventy-eight degrees is kind of the magic number.
0: Do they spawn? Do they tend to spawn in warmer water or cooler water? Warmer water. Okay, is that just because their offspring needs the warmer water yeah. to hatch?
1: Yeah, I mean they're a tropical subtropical species, right? So it has to be salty water and warm water. Okay, yeah.
0: so they're not spawning in any brackish stuff. No, the snook's going back out.
1: Yeah, they need that. High, that's why they're on the beaches. Uh, sometimes early in the season they spawn in summer. Um, before the rains start, um, it looks like there's some spawning within estuaries because the salinity is still high enough. But yes, for, so for tarpon, I think temperature's part of it, but it's also food. Uh. And if you go to, say, the mouth of the Mississippi River, um, you've heard about the crazy redfish fishing in the fall. Yeah. All those menhaden and shrimp and everything else coming out of the estuaries. Chesapeake Bay is a major men- menhaden place. Also, of course, crabs and everything else. Um, there's on the east coast. There's somewhat of a mullet migration down oh, okay. the coast, out of the estuaries and down the coast, and the tarpon, and cobia, and jacks, and all other stuff will follow that. Okay,
0: that makes sense. So yeah. they're chasing food, chasing temperatures.
1: Right. But we also know that some fish migrate, but some don't. So we've had a bunch of fish that, for example, were tagged in Marathon and the Florida Keys just never went anywhere. Are they smaller fish? Size doesn't seem to matter. We've had recently we had a 50 pound fish go from Charlotte Harbor, which is Southwest Florida. Hour and a half south of Tampa, go around the Everglades, up Cape, got picked up in Cape Canaveral, and then came back. That was a fifty-pound fish. We've had other fifty-pound fish that, in the same time period, just never went anywhere. Is
0: it safe to say that there could be two hundred-pound fish that just don't migrate? Yeah. So, what do you think that is? Do you think that's Mother Nature's way of keeping things kind of adaptive, or?
1: Well, um, general terms, a lot of populations or fish are movers or stickers. Salmon is a great example, right? Most of the fish will go back to their home, their natal stream, but a certain number of the fish will go elsewhere. They don't have that homing to that particular spot. So those are kind of the movers.
0: We can track that with otoliths. Can you guys do that with your species?
1: Not so much because the water chemistry changes as they go from the ocean up into those rivers. And each of those rivers has a different, a lot of them have different chemical signatures. Of course. There's a lot more mixing in the coastal environment and in the open ocean. Right. We can see some stuff, but not nearly what you guys can see with the, the, the salmon and the Because you don't head. have
0: the mineral content. You Correct. can't just tell by the salinity content because it's the same, apparently.
1: Right. Now, we can tell some with the, the isotope ratios will change fresh versus salt water. So we can see large-scale changes. Like we can see, for example, that a juvenile spent its first two years in a freshwater creek before it came out. But then you also have the systems that we're working for it with for both snook and tarpon the juveniles use backcountry wetlands mangrove swamps if it if it's stinky and full of mosquitoes and a mucky bottom that's perfect for them but the problem is if you have a really wet rainy season those are going to be fresh water but if the next year you have a bit of a drought those are going to be salt water um, and so even year to year You've got chemical differences in the same spot.
0: Oh, so that makes it so hard. It does. This science is really fascinating. I can see why this is you and your entire life. Coming up, Erin and I talk conservation and other science that may help your fishing. Thanks again to Trident for making this episode possible. Again, don't miss out on their 15% off coupon exclusive only to Anchored listeners. With free shipping and no minimum order, it only makes sense to go to www.tridentflyfishing.com and get your shopping done today. Just enter the coupon code ANCHORED at checkout. Trident also has a castability guarantee and a trade-in program. I'll include links to each of these points in the show's write-up. Let me ask you a couple questions about things that I've always wondered, okay. if that's okay. Yep. The worm hatch, mm-hmm. what is that?
1: Uh, it's a, people call it a clam worm. It's a worm that lives in the bottom. And the thought is that they come out of the bottom to spawn. And so they're on the surface on certain moon tides to spawn. And, you know, tarpon take advantage of it. But it's pretty bizarre that, you know, 100-pound fish is eating something that, how do they even know that they swallowed it? I mean, it's tiny but striped big striped bass do the same thing up in uh, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Uh, the same moon, like in June, um, they'll sit there and sip these little clam worms. Different it, species of worm, but the same process.
0: But it can't be, I mean, it's obviously not what they usually eat, because it's only, how long does the hatch last for?
1: Well, it's it's on a lunar cycle, and depending, you might get a you know, handful, a season. Yeah. Um, you'll have some a few days in a row, and it's location-specific, and sometimes location, it doesn't happen... I mean, we don't understand it, but obviously they do, because <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, there's some kind of cue, for example, for the worms to know that it's all time for them to all come up and, and spawn.
0: Okay, but so we really don't know that much about the worm hatch at all.
1: No, but if you go to the west coast of Florida, Charlotte Harbor, Sar- Sarasota, Tampa Bay, small crabs flush out on the moons, and the tarpon go crazy over those too, and they're a little bit bigger than a silver dollar. They're not big, um, but it's the same kind of explosive feeding.
0: That's so strange. I wonder if there's some sort of nutritional value that we just haven't figured out yet.
1: Yeah, good question. It, I mean, their, their diet is just really varied. You know, everything from catfish to crabs to shrimp to sardines, it's really variable.
0: Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they're pretty opportunistic.
1: Yeah, I think so. Okay, so
0: what are you mostly focused on right now?
1: <sighs> BTT. Um, I mean, there's so much going on right now. BTT is either conducting or funding uh, colleagues to do research. I think we have 27 different projects going on.
0: Okay. What are the ones that you're most focused on?
1: I'm focused a lot right now on the tarpon tagging, working with uh, Andy and one of his students, Luke, on trying to tag as many fish as we can with acoustic tags. And these tags are cool because they're five-year tags. And we surgically implant them, uh, but we'll be, we'll be able to see individual movements over five years. So do the same fish go back to the same place every year? Or do, you know? say one year a fish goes to uh, Bahia Honda Channel in the Florida Keys, next year it goes to Boca Grande Pass, next year it goes to Apalachicola, or does it go back and follow the same pattern each year? We really don't know.
0: How long have you been doing this study for so far?
1: Uh, we just started our second year. So we've got about oh, yeah. 60 tarpon tagged, and it's a five-year project. So that's that's a really big focus.
0: Why did it take you guys so long to do a tagging program with these fish?
1: Well, we supported satellite tagging. For quite some time, uh, up till twenty twelve. But satellite tags are super expensive. They are
0: like, what is it average for one? Five
1: grand a fish. It's a lot. Yeah. Um they're external tags, uh, and they're big, so fish had to be say over a hundred pounds. Okay. They if you're lucky, they'll stay on for six months, but usually shorter. So we could get information on big fish, we could get information for relatively short amounts of time. So that gave us the overall perspective of you know, some fish migrate, some fish don't. To what extent do they migrate? Um, but it didn't tell us anything about smaller fish, and it didn't tell us anything about multiple years.
0: Okay. So the tags you have now, are these the ones, when I used to be a sturgeon guide, I was part of the tagging program, and right. we had, they look like a little glass thing or like a little delicate no, thing this
1: big? those were uh, pit tags.
0: Oh, okay. What kind of tags are you using? We're
1: using acoustic tags.
0: So what do the acoustic tags look like?
1: They look like they're black. They look like uh, the ones we're using, say, a AA battery, but a little bit longer.
0: Oh, okay. So they're much bigger than what we were using. Oh,
1: yeah, because they have to have a battery in them to basically run things. So what happens, we surgically implant them, put a little slice in the tarpon, get it in their abdomen, stitch it up, and they send out a subsonic ping. Uh, the best way to think about it is a submarine movie. Sure. Right? And then there's re- underwater receivers that we place and others place around, and if the fish swims within, let's say, 500 meters, the receiver picks up that tag signal, and each tag is a unique code. Oh. So the reason we're doing this now, instead of, say, six, seven years ago, is there weren't enough people before using acoustic tags to make it worthwhile. Okay. So now, though, people doing research on what tarpon or sharks or rays or whatever in the Gulf of Mexico, I think there's around three thousand receivers underwater. Wow. Scattered around from Florida all the way through Texas.
0: What's your cost per fish with this program?
1: Each tag is probably three four hundred bucks, maybe five hundred bucks. Okay. So. So five years for five hundred bucks is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but on the East Coast, there's you know, another probably 5,000 acoustic receivers. So, for example, we have colleagues up in Georgia who have acoustic receivers out for redfish and cobia. But they'll pick up our fish.
0: So what's the range on the receiver to the
1: fish themselves? Uh, in good conditions, probably over 500 meters. Okay. But if it's like super shallow or super noisy like a boat channel, it's shorter because of oh. interference.
0: So it's not like you're tracking them miles and miles and miles away. No,
1: it's like points. Right. So we know, like, say, on, you know, February 1st, a tarpon passed the receiver in this pass. And then, you know, two weeks later, he passed somewhere else. So you know, in general, the, the movement patterns. So we can then look at, uh, say, Florida Everglades, which is a mess. As it's restored, will that change how the tarpon use Florida Bay? Because mm. right? talking to the, a lot of the guys who fish Florida Bay, they're seeing fewer and fewer tarpon up in Florida Bay where they used to fish for laid up fish. And our thought is that you know, the water quality has just declined. Is, will that change as the water quality improves?
0: Water quality declining in which way? Is it, is it pollution? Is it global warming? Like, what is your thought on this?
1: Um, yeah, the water coming out of the Everglades is typically not in great shape. There's a lot of nutrients, which cause algae blooms, plankton blooms, which shade out the seagrass, which kills the seagrass. And the most Also, what happened recently is not enough, not enough fresh water was coming down the Everglades. It was being sent out. Uh, rivers on either side of Florida, and so the salinity in, in Florida Bay got super high, and that killed a lot of stuff. Right. So I think I think the most recent number is sixty thousand acres of seagrass died, and that's, that's critical habitat. Exactly. Yeah. And so that we're back to the habitat.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. I think we're always going to end up back at the <laughs> yeah. habitat. Yeah. Right.
1: So by having a long time series, we'll be able to tell how the fish respond to that type of stuff.
0: Anything shocking so far?
1: No, I mean. That's a funny thing. You have you might have some expectations in science, but, I mean, to paraphrase Einstein, if we knew the answers, it wouldn't be called research. Right. So I just really don't have expectations. It's all about seeing what happens, what the fish tell us.
0: Are you doing the same thing with Permit?
1: Yep. Yep. Um, I'm working with uh, a couple guys, Steve Cook and uh, Jake Brownscombe out of Carleton University in Canada. Oh, oh cool. Uh, Why Canada? Um, we work with the best people, it doesn't matter where they are. I mean we work with uh people at Eco Sur University in Mexico. Um University of Havana. So wherever the best people are is where that's who we that's who we fund. How
0: do you find these
1: guys? Um magic. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just having a, a good connections, good relationships. But also, you know, if people publish scientific papers, um and you're doing research on, say, animal tracking or catch and release Impacts or physiology, you can pretty quickly find out who the most productive ones are. Not the most productive, but also the most focused research. Sure. I mean, one of the differences about BTT is that all of our research has a specific conservation purpose. In the academic world, I'm a part of that also, there can be very focused, purposeful research, but there's also a, that general academic curiosity. Mm-hmm. And the research can be fantastic, uh, and it might eventually have a conservation in- impact, but um, that's not necessarily the goal of the research. It's just to discover, you know, right, to find more information. All the stuff we do has to have a conservation impact. And some scientists are better at doing that type of focus than others. Okay. So that's one of the nice things. Next week I'll be at World Recreational Fisheries Conference in Victoria, And all the people there are doing exactly the kind of thing that we're doing, very focused, applied uh, research.
0: What can we do right now? What are you doing that we can help you with?
1: Well, the acoustic tagging for permit and tarpon, we need people out there with us fishing. Um, So, for example, in mid-August, we'll be in Tampa and in Charlotte Harbor in Florida for a week, and we'll just try and have as many fishing guides out there with our phone numbers. So if they catch a tarpon, they give us a call, um, we run over, take the fish from them and and do the tagging.
0: Is the fish just left, you know on the side of the boat and they're hanging on to it? no, we have a sling. There? You do. okay, so they're they're set up beforehand. They've got a sling in their boat.
1: No, we have the sling. okay, so they'll they'll if they get a fish on, it'll look like they'll they'll land it, which is often not the case with tarpon. No. Um,
0: then they just hang on and wait for you guys to get there?
1: We don't know. We don't want them to hold the fish. No, I didn't think so. They have so. to be fighting it, and we come up close. Oh, and then once,
0: makes way more sense. Yeah, okay. and then
1: once, it, once they are ready to land it, we pull it into the sling, and we drift off and do the tagging, and they can go right back to fishing.
0: Okay, that makes me feel way better. That makes way more sense. Yep. Beyond that, is there anything else that we could do to help you guys out?
1: Um, well, people always ask that. And one of the biggest things, it's not sexy at all, um, and it doesn't involve fishing, But it's making sure the resource managers and politicians know that this stuff is important. A lot of the politics going on right now is anti-habitat. And a fisheries agency can manage the fish only so much. But if they don't have the habitat to support the fish populations, it doesn't matter what other regulations they have, catch and release, size limits, season. They're irrelevant if the fish don't have the good habitats. And the problem with that is, by the, a lot of times, like with tarpon, they'll live up to 80 years, right? And they don't get sexually mature until around 10 years old. So let's say you lose all the juvenile tarpon habitat. You won't know that as a fisherman until 10 years later when they're big enough to kind of enter the fishery that we we focus on. Um, so it's kind of a legacy thing too. But in general, in the salmon, steelhead, trout world, in general, the angling community is decades ahead of us as far as understanding what the needs and, and, and pushing for those uh, changes in conservation, but in the saltwater world, um, there's still a huge gap in fishermen's knowledge.
0: What about permit? What's their what's their cycle?
1: Good question. I think it's about four years old. Okay. Bonefish about three and a half years Snook. old. Snook could be as young as a couple two years old, but typically three. Okay. Or more. Got it. Yeah.
0: How how fast does a tarpic grow?
1: That's a really good question. We thought we knew. But now we. You know, getting some more r- recent data on juveniles and we don't we're not really sure we used to think conventional wisdom that year one they're about 16 inches long year two maybe 26 inches long year three you know 36 inches rapid growth early on and then they kind of slow down but in depending on the habitat and location we're finding some juveniles that like didn't grow at all over the course of a year
0: so is a baby tarpon an actual baby tarpon yeah is it going to get bigger or are they yes. stuck as baby tarpon for the rest of their lives? So they like the Danny DeVitos? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, they definitely grow. Um, we just think there's a, a great variability in how fast they grow depending on where they are. In some places, for example, where there's like hundreds and hundreds of little baby tarpon that are, say, six inches long, we think there's so much competition for food that their growth might be stunted.
0: Oh, it's just like lake fishing with trout.
1: Right. It also might be that in a certain year, because you had a lot of rain or you didn't have any rain, the type and amount of prey are different, so there's a lot of things we're trying to figure out about exactly that. But yeah, the conventional wisdom is you know the 16, 26, 36 kind of thing. But we're not really sure. Okay. And it's it's kind of like well, most fish you can age the fish by looking at their ear bone, their otolith, you know, with the growth annual growth rings. But in order to do that, you have to kill the fish.
0: Right. Can um, you do it with scale samples?
1: Nope. We've tried for tarpon; it's not reliable. Bonefish; we've tried; it's not reliable.
0: How so? I mean, do they still have rings like? There special? are some rings,
1: yeah. But when you're working in tropical, subtropical environment, you don't have the extreme seasons that you do farther north. That makes sense. Okay. Right? And so the thought is that uh, if they put a lot of effort into reproducing, um, they're not growing. And so that would cause a change in the in the ring. But for bonefish, the spawning season is like late October through April. They don't all spawn every Every full moon, but that's their kind of spawning season. So it was, when it's that elongate, you don't really get as much of an idea for like the scales or whatnot. The ear bones still work.
0: But we don't want to be killing fish.
1: We don't want to be killing fish.
0: Okay. If you could give me the three top interesting facts that come to mind about tarpon in like a rapid fire situation, what would it be?
1: Wow. That's tough because there's been so much information. Right. And it's been. It's been so gradual that it just kind of builds on itself.
0: I know. And see, so it it's might impressive. not be shocking to you. Right. But it's shocking to us.
1: Exactly. Well, one would be that, you know, what we already talked about, about the fish movements. Everybody yeah. thinks that the tarpon, they all go up to uh, Louisiana and then they all come down to the Keys. The fact that it's a lot more variable than that um, is pretty huge. Uh, another big one is that with all the tagging that's been done, there's not yet been a fish that's been tracked going between the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. And actually, this is another really interesting one that people don't think about. The peak season for fishing for adult tarpon is the summer. You know, in, in Florida, it's also the summer in Cuba, Belize. Right, their big fish come in to the coast where guys fish for them same time of year. June, you know, May, June, July.
0: That's just because the heat, you think?
1: Well, it's the tropics. It's not that much different. But they're going through. Whatever reproductive phase down there, the same way they are up here, and so we we think they're they're different fish. Uh, it's not like you know, the fish you see in Cuba come up to the Keys, or you know if there's if you're on a flat on the Florida Keys and you see you know, a thousand fish swim by one day. In the winter, those thousand fish don't go down and uh, overwinter in Cuba. There's no other spot like in the winter where you find tens of thousands of tarpon. We, we don't know where they go in the winter.
0: God, there's st- so they are still a mystery
1: yeah and and that's actually a a really key point the research we do is to allow improved conservation to make sure there's still a good fishery in the future we don't do research to help people find and catch the fish no that's their job right um so we want to figure out where they go in the winter just enough so that we know if it's a certain spot we can kind of put a red box around that spot and get Fisheries agencies to put it off limits.
0: Is there any? Yeah, is there any talk of making any of these waterways national parks or parks, marine parks?
1: Well, that's happened in the Bahamas. Um,
0: but in Florida or in the states,
1: uh, they're not, to my knowledge. A lot of the keys is a national marine sanctuary with different types of regulations. Um, Florida in Florida, bone or tarpon and bonefish are catch and release only. Um, so those kind of regulations there. But as far as like protected areas. Yeah. No,
0: I just think it's interesting, and you know, I've traveled to certain countries. Australia is a prime example, and we've got mar- these marine parks. And of course, there's an uproar because you can't fish them. But if you have the fish's best interest at heart, you know it makes sense that there's areas that are kind of um, off limits for anglers. Right? Do you think that that could ha- that that should happen in the states, or is that just going to be a political or a, you know a nightmare with the?
1: It's a guides? it's a political nightmare <laughs> in many ways. But there's a lot there is a lot of movement to more spatial management so pole troll zones right so people aren't running across the flats tearing up the seagrass scaring the fish that's being used in a number of places everglades national park has just implemented that um i would imagine the national sanctuary in the keys will probably use a similar approach so in preparation for that what we did in the keys is um we we (laughs) it's amazing they did this with a lot of the guides we laid out maps and said draw circles on your where you fish and they actually shared that information. I was going
0: to say, how did you get that information?
1: Um, because they, they trust us and they know we're not going to share that information. Sure. Those maps are actually in a locked safe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then, so we have, for the Florida Keys, we have uh, maps of where flats fishing occurs so that if, in a future management plan, they want to they close off areas and make patrol zones, we can advocate for the fishery. Um, at the same time, we advocate for management. Right, so maybe a good bonefish flat would be a good pole troll zone, which would still allow fishing, versus a proposal that would basically just close everything off because they're worried about boat damaging the seagrass.
0: Sounds like compromise.
1: Yeah, so it's we think it's a pretty good proactive approach. Right, Um, it's kind of like you know with trout there's catch and release zones, Mm -hmm. um, or with salmon that type of thing. It's the same type of spatial regulation because they're catch and release, so you can't really you regulate harvest or anything like that.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes it tricky. Uh the the now it's not marl. What are we going to call the sediment of the ocean floor?
1: Well, it depends on where you are. In the flats here. Um it it can be marl, for example, on the back side of the middle and upper keys, a lot of places it looks like beautiful sand, then you step out and you know, up to your waist and in the marl. Other places it's a uh, sandy bottom. Um, but it's the
0: marl more, I, I, I remember reading something that shocked me about just how long the, it takes to accumulate that bottom and how many nutrients are
1: in it. Some of it, there's a lot of nutrients. Others, there's not. So let's say you go to the uh, west side of Andros Island in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. That's all soft bottom marl. Um, there's very, very little nutrients in that.
0: How old? I mean, if you were to dig down a foot. Uh-huh. How many years are you finding? Oh,
1: good question. I no idea.
0: It's old, though, and right? And a lot of
1: that's going to change, too, because if you have organisms that uh, churn things up, like worms or even crabs digging things up, but just filter feeding organisms like worms or clams, they're constantly mixing that. So in a lot of places in the tropics, you can't really do a core like that if it's biologically active uh, because a certain layer is just always getting mixed. Right. Yeah. Which, if you have a polluted system with contaminants like copper or something, means that they're they're not being deposited and left. You know, they're gone. They're kind of just being remixed back up into the system over and over again.
0: Oh my gosh! I don't know how you do all the science because there's just so much. I mean, the world is huge. Yeah. Do you get overwhelmed, or do you just try to focus on one thing and, and roll with it?
1: Um, no, you have to. Multitasking is not the right word. You just you have to uh, juggle a lot of balls at the same time. Yeah. But that's also why we collaborate so much. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a big sense. job.
0: Um, why do tarpon daisy chain?
1: Good question. We were talking about this this past weekend. Nobody knows. You'd have to talk to the tarpon. Okay. But a, get few, right on a few a few theories. One is that um, it's a pre-spawning behavior.
0: I was going to ask you yeah. that. So is this a scent thing that you're talking about?
1: Could be. A lot of times you'll see with the chain, you'll see a couple really big fish, which were probably females, and then a bunch of smaller fish, which are probably males. Mm-hmm. Um, daisy chaining. Uh, And when you see those, say, in uh, May, June, maybe in July, like a week before the full moon, that'd be my guess, is that's what that is. But you also see it on, like, a defensive posture, uh, like, you know, fish schooling because the shark's around or something like that. Right. But I think it also happens if they're feeling especially pressured by boats, fishing pressure.
0: Uh, I was afraid you are going to say something about that.
1: Okay. Um, So you'll actually sometimes see fish that are swimming in a string and a bunch of boats, you know don't behave well as far as staying on anchor or whatnot and there's a lot of moving haul slap you'll see them daisy chain i think that's just you know stress behavior and then they'll also daisy chain when they're trying to get reorient themselves so they'll be swinging along, swimming along a sandbank let's say and they get to a spot where the sandbank spits out a sandbar and instead of just following it sometimes they just kind of chain for a minute or two while they get their bearings on which way to go
0: oh that's it now there's yeah. a lead fish yeah is that usually a female?
1: Nobody knows.
0: Oh, <laughs> it's
1: not always a, the biggest fish leading, but that doesn't mean it's you know not a smaller female. I wonder how
0: they. I wonder how the lead fish comes to be.
1: Good question. We've
0: I'm got a- lots of questions for the tarpon. I need to podcast <laughs> the tarpon. Damn it!
1: But I, this is really good because that information is really relevant to fishing, but it's not relevant to conservation.
0: Right. <laughs> you right, got it. Yeah. So.
1: But that's I mean—that's part of the fun of doing this research because a lot of the stuff we do um, is applicable to conservation, but you can also learn things that might help your fishing. It's helped and it's hurt my fishing because we've learned some stuff about movements of fish. So there's some places now I don't fish because it you know, wouldn't really be ethical to fish places that we figured out.
0: Is there anything that you can think of or any places that you'd like people to stay away from while you have their attention?
1: Not places to avoid well, yeah. One is don't fish for spawning fish.
0: Okay, but so do they ever spawn in the flats?
1: No, but uh, where where uh, where bonefish spawn or they're pre-spawn before they go offshore are usually like shallow bays close to deep water. That in some places, you know, fishermen know where they are and and you know they might fish them. Uh, chances are those fish don't make it because there's a lot of sharks. You know, if they can't get back into that spawning pre-spawning school, they're not going to make it. Uh, permit. Uh, people do fish those a lot on the wrecks, and more and more of the guides are telling us about sharks eating a lot of those fish.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it's one thing if a shark occasionally needs to fish on the flat, but if those fish are there to spawn and you're pulling them out of, you're basically taking them out of the population while they're spawning. So that, as far as what not to do as far as fishing is if if they're spawning, just leave them alone. But even a bigger one too is, uh, and I know you guys have this problem a lot of streams, is we just need to get back to ethical handling behavior like
0: you' talking proper fish handling yeah there, also fish
1: handling type. but also you know don't run fish over to find fish people actually do that you know that type of thing if if on the flats if somebody's staked out on a sandbar waiting for tarpon to come along yeah. don't stake out 50 feet from them. Yeah. But if you're on a stream for steelhead and somebody came and stood 20 feet away from you and started swinging a fly...
0: <laughs> I started throwing my bear spray around. Exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, that kind of stuff is, is not good for the fish and it's also not good for us. No. But then, uh, you know, again, I go back to the whole thing of a squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah. Uh, right. Fishermen have to tell the managers and the politicians to stop messing up the habitats. No, you're right. Because it it's not as good at fishing now as it was when I was growing up or even 20 years ago.
0: It's pretty scary when you in your lifetime are seeing the shifting baseline. Yeah. Um, because I do have to let you go to a meeting. I'm going to ask you two more questions and then okay. I'm going to let you go. Um, biggest aha moment with Permit?
1: <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to say it without cursing.
0: That You wouldn't be the first on this show. <laughs> and you have met me, right? Like... Yes, yes. This is true.
1: <laughs> this is true. The biggest aha moment with Permit was when I lived on the Virgin Islands. This was in the mid-90s. Learning that two things that they ate. One was they eat sea urchins. Oh. Yeah. The little kind of red and black ones, about the size, smaller than a golf ball. Huh. They eat those a lot. Okay. Um. So I actually tied up urchin flies. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they worked. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. And then
1: the second was that they eat a lot of mantis shrimp. And back in the 90s, everybody was just casting crab. And a lot of people now are casting shrimp flies, too.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And so
1: that was just kind of, a, you know, the science in me out fishing, turning over rocks and watching their behavior and all that kind of stuff do they, of a permit? That was, that was pretty big
0: do they eat jellyfish? no because I've seen them like daisy chaining in this crazy crazy or just swirling around in this enormous right. ball and the only thing in the middle
1: were jellyfish no not to my I knowledge I was tying
0: on plastic bags under my <laughs> flies I was desperate okay any idea what that would have been? no okay
1: I'll no. have to figure that out and then <laughs> last
0: thing uh, biggest aha moment with bonefish
1: biggest aha moment with bonefish the growth rate differences. Really? Yeah, so let's say if you've got a 23-inch fish in the Florida Keys, that's probably about five pounds. Um, that same that fish in the Florida Keys is about six years old. In the Caribbean, you know, if you go fish on any Caribbean island, that fish is 16.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Is it diet?
1: We don't know. Diet or if they're in the tropics, right, they're cold-blooded. Mm-hmm. So it might be that the temp- warmer temperatures, they have to eat more just to maintain metabolism. Whereas up in the Keys, you have longer winters cooler not cold but cooler temperatures so more energy can go into growth rather than um, and we're not we don't know
0: I love all the we don't knows yeah. so what that means is because you have a meeting and I have to let you go right. I'd love to have you back on the show again
1: anytime to
0: focus on a project specifically and really break it down because your knowledge is just astronomical sure um, is there anything that you would like to add or ask me before I let you go
1: um, yeah when are you going to help BTT out and do another show with us
0: As soon as you guys are ready. All right. I'm always around.
1: (laughs) This is good. Because we want to do some more more of that stuff in new places like Mexico and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I'd like to be as involved as possible.
1: Okay, that'd be awesome. For sure.
0: Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for the time.
0: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please leave a review about Anchored online.